Let's be honest. How many times have you chalked up a relationship ending to bad timing? For hosts Nancy and PJ Heslin, the answer is a lot. It took living separately in Canada, the U.S., and France, two divorces, and 20 years for timing to work out. And when it finally did in the south of France, the couple discovered they had two different versions of their love story. We all do, right? But what if your side is not the whole story, and you have the journals to prove it? Keep listening to Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together, a podcast on love, relationships, and two lives in between. This episode is brought to you by the Pan Lagos Foundation. Pan Lagos is based in New York City, and they are a nonprofit cultural organization founded on the ideals of Hellenism, dedicated to the betterment of humanity by supporting intercultural dialogue and exchange through the Hellenic language, education, and ideals, providing opportunities for the pursuit of excellence to individuals of all ages and backgrounds, bringing the wisdom of the past in dialogue with the present. We aim to inspire a happier, healthier humanity for today and the future. Welcome to Episode 6 of Nancy and PJ Finally Get Together. I'm Nancy Heslin. And I'm still PJ Heslin. In this episode, we are Christmas 1992. PJ, how much do you love Christmas? Oh, Christmas. I love Christmas. I love it so much. It's my favorite time of year. I love the lead up to Christmas. I start listening to Christmas carols right after Halloween. <laughs> the, the six months before Christmas, I mentally note it. What were Christmas holidays like for you? I mean, you had seven siblings. So as a, as a kid, what was Christmas like at your household? Yeah, we had a big family and, and cousins as well. So it was, I mean, there were, we really had, as a kid, three different Christmases. So Christmas Eve, my grandparents would have a big meal. That was a big deal. You'd go to midnight mass. Uh, and as a kid, that was exciting because you're up late past midnight in Jesus's home celebrating his birthday. And then the tradition after that was you'd go home and you'd open up one present. And we had that too. Uh, so yeah, that was exciting. You know, you were up late. It was two, three in the morning. You opened up, you got a taste of your presents. Yeah, but and I then, have a feeling that you probably... You love you love giving gifts so much to people that you <laughs> yes, you can't spoil wait it. for the element of surprise. You you generally have to tell somebody what you you explode because you have to tell them what you've given them. I'm, so as a kid, you must have been one of those little oh, tots yeah. that ran around looking for their presents and also telling everybody, "What this is what I got you." And I'm still like that to this day. When I you know when I get yeah. you a present, I'm like, uh, "Can I just tell you even before you open it?" So I yeah, I loved it. People say, "Oh, it's too commercial." Yeah, but you didn't say. Did you used to go and look for kid, uh, toys when you were a kid? Um, yeah, you'd, Not you'd, toys, you'd look at under the tree, you'd look at all the, uh, I'm not talking about under the tree. Would you actively search in the house? Oh yes. In that, fact, where yes. Santa had hidden your gifts. Yes. That's how I found out there was no Santa was I was five years old, uh, looking for <laughs> where my mom, there's no Santa. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Love bug. There's no what? Santa. So yeah, five years old looking for Christmas presents in the house and found where my mom had the stash. And my mom had gotten me uh, this little carpenter set. It was awesome. It was like a little carpenter set for a little boy, a little ruler, and little tools, a little hammer, a little, little drill, hand drill. And of course, I played with it in secret in the closet where she had hidden it for the six weeks or so before Christmas. And of course, Broke it. So I'd broken a couple of the tools, put them back, and then on Christmas Day, opened it up and pretended that, what, what happened? It's, these are broken. What happened? 
And on that, the, the gift, it had said to uh, PJ from Santa. So that's when I realized it was like, wait a minute, this was in the closet. As a side note, I would like to say that my father gave me a pink toolbox and filled it with tools. So it wasn't just that tools were for little boys. No, but mine wasn't pink. And what about the food at your house? Um, yeah, once a huge deal was the food. So as I said, we'd have three different Christmas, no, four different Christmases. Christmas Eve uh, with my grandparents, big, big meal. Then you'd wake up in the morning, you'd have a little breakfast. And then we'd have, we'd go to my mom's cousins, have a meal there. We'd go to my dad's, not my mom's cousins, my mom's sister's place. So my cousins on my mom's side. Then we go to the cousins on my dad's side and have a meal there. On the same day? Yes. Yeah. And then usually have a little something when we got home. Now I understand how you are the only person that could eat three Thanksgiving dinners on one day. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it was about, it wasn't just about the gifts, but it was about the food. It was about family. What's your favorite? What was the favorite traditional food? Because it was, your grandparents were Polish, right? Yeah. Yeah. Did they make anything oh, that... pierogies. Pierogies? Yeah, my grandmother used to make these awesome pierogies. That was the biggest sort of traditional. And then there was a lot of it. There's a thing called bagus, which is kind of like a coleslaw, which I love. Bagus? Yeah, it's called bag... I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but uh, that... Kielbasa, of course, tons mm. of kielbasa. And, um, but to give an idea of your household on any given day, forget Christmas, but if you look at photos, the little tiny Kodak with the, the rounded corner square photos from back in the day of PJ's household, every picture looks like it's somebody's birthday party because there's literally like six little kids sitting on a sofa, but they're just as siblings watching TV. Yeah, I remember that uh, my sister sent me a bunch of photos and you were looking at them. And yeah, there's something like 15 kids all on two different couches and you're like, hey, whose uh, birthday party was that? And I was like, no, that was... That was just a Sunday dinner. But you've always carried that sort of Christmas spirit. I mean, you yeah. just loved it even to as yeah. you were getting older. So at that at, at the holidays, when you'd go and spend time with your family like that, and after the Yuck Yuck show, do you did you, particularly this Christmas, because we had just seen each other on the 22nd, and we were supposed to see each other on the 26th, did you think about me? Or were you just, did you just love spending time with your family? Did you have writing stuff? Were you working? What else yeah. were you doing at that time? Definitely well, Christmas for standup is the best period of time because oh. everybody goes out and everybody's in a good mood. You have to be really bad to have a bad set during <laughs> that sort of Christmas period of, of kind of like late November until the new year because everybody's just in this awesome mood. So I was doing a lot of shows. Did you ever bomb on stage? Oh God, yeah. What was oh, the yeah. first time you bombed on stage? Uh, my first professional gig at the Laugh Resort. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Went down <laughs> full of confidence because I'd been doing amateur nights for a couple months and doing well and thinking, oh, I'm just going to slay. And then oh, probably in a couple of months, I'll be headlining this club. And yeah, so went down, got up on stage full of confidence, definitely prepared, uh, had a nice set list all prepared, get up there. And I don't know what happened, but it's just the first joke out of my mouth, no response, just nothing. I'm sure the audience probably read, read on me, oh, this guy just thinks he's so great, whatever. We're not going to. And it just, just nothing. And then within seconds, just that flop sweat and tunnel vision again, you know, finished my set, got off, and just thought, well, that's it. I'm never doing stand up again because they're never going to have me back. And 
walked off and the, the, the guy who booked the club was just sort of chuckling at me like, hey, welcome to Pro Sets. So that made me feel a little bit better. But the thing that made me feel really good was the other comics were at the back of the group. So there was about, at that point, I'd had about six or seven friends that did stand up regularly at the Laugh Resort and they were all there standing at the back. So if you are a comic and if other comics are standing at the back of the room, that means that they like your stand-up and they like you. And then they all just started giving, you know, razzing me, as they say, uh, just really giving me a hard time, like, eh, welcome. And so even though I bombed, they all made me feel much better by giving me a hard time about how badly I bombed. But if you look at that as, a, as an example, do you, is there a reason you bombed? Is it just because the connection with the audience or is it really the material just yeah it can be a whole of bunch of things it can be sometimes it is the audience sometimes they're just not in the mood or sometimes they're too drunk or or sometimes it's you're just you don't connect with them sometimes it is it's overconfidence you know um i, I think i read this in the manuscript you were talking about how not that we want to give away everything when our book is soon to be published <laughs> but um you mentioned something about these two ways that people used to get on stage and one had something to do with you had to get so many people to come into the show or something and make them drink and one of them was standing on a street corner with a sign yeah so in new york toronto is different in toronto you didn't have to bring people to a show you uh you you know just like i said last episode you phoned in went on a wait list you eventually got on if you kept phoning in new york much more competitive and even though i when i went to new york i had a manager i'd done a festival in in Canada or whatever, you still had to do these shows that were called bringer shows. So you had to bring 10 people to a show or you had to go out and what they call bark, bark for the show. So you'd go literally, bark. yeah, you'd literally go out on the street say, hey, come to a comedy show. And you have these flyers. And Did you have to do that? Uh, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I, uh, no, I refused to. I, I, that's something I just can't imagine it, you bark. Well, my, I can imagine you barking, but not. Yeah, my, my theory about that was like, if I have to, do that. I'm not doing stand up. Um, and not because, oh, I'm so great. It was literally like, I'm, I'm not, I'm just, just not going to degrade myself in that way. Uh, and, you know, even the bringer shows, I didn't, I didn't know anybody in New York. I had one roommate. So the bringer shows were, well, here I am. This is all I know in New York. So you bombed one night, and I'm sure that in your entire career, there must have been. Other oh god yeah standout moments yeah. it's really something you can never predict you no. just have to how do no. you recover from that then it's just you have a pretty big ego i'm just gonna say that so how do you recover it, and not beat it's one off? thing if it's like because sometimes the show can be set up so badly that it's hilarious when because you know you're gonna bomb and it's hilarious to yourself you know when i started getting paid professionally we used to do these college shows and the worst were you do these lunchtime gigs and it was literally and usually in a cafeteria they'd throw a couple of tables together and you'd stand up in a well-lit cafeteria while people are trying to eat burgers and try to throw jokes at them from your mouth and those rarely went well and yeah i did one show and this I, when i went is there in toronto no this was just outside of toronto at a college and uh, yeah, got there, and this guy was playing guitar, singing folk songs. 
And I get there and the, the, the kid, because it was a student booker, the student booker saw me and was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I just realized I booked both you guys. And it was such a long drive out there that I, she was like, you know, can you come back next week or do you want to go on after him? And I was like, I'll go on after him because I, I didn't want to drive all the way back next week. And I knew I was going to bomb. You know, if you go up after a folk singer and it's broad daylight in the middle of the day and they're eating hamburgers. They're 19-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds. There's no alcohol involved. You are going to bomb. And I did. Like, I bombed so beautifully well. I mean, people were heckling me. By the end of it, they were like doing that, na, 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 hey, hey. And I was literally laughing my head off because it was so bad that you just, I mean, you just wished people I knew were there to see it to to just get a gist of how bad and funny it was. Yeah. And then you got to drive an hour back. home with that in the back of your head so if you look back and you think again about like comedy and being funny it really stems from the fact that you had this big family and at these big family yeah, events that was your way to i get think attention. definitely yeah definitely i think in my for me in my family being funny was my way to get attention from the other eight siblings that i had sorry seven siblings but i have a half brother so yeah eight total um, and yeah, my brother, Steve and I used to sort of have these little routines that we do when we have these big family get togethers at Easter or Christmas or whatever. Yeah. It was definitely a way of like, here I am. Pay attention to me. Mom, dad, look, Hey everybody. Look mm, at me. It hasn't changed much. <laughs> no, it has not. The dog and I now are like, Oh, come on. <laughs> but it, PJ's family Christmases were quite different from mine. And also even just his attitude towards Christmas, I, for some reason, I have a really loving family, spectacular parents. The best. The best, really. And yet I never took to Christmas. From a young age, I instinctively knew that there was something I, I didn't, I didn't approve of the commercialism of the feeling of having to buy gifts for the sake of buying a gift right now, rather than, oh, I saw this and thought of you. And to the point that from a young age, I would volunteer on Christmas day to go and spend it at a senior's home where people were alone and I'd sit and, and have meals with them and, and then go back at the end of the day and have Christmas dinner with my family. And it has nothing to do with how I felt about my family. I wasn't really a fan of Christmas dinner. I still am not a big fan of how turkey. How can you not be? I don't know. Gravy? Just, turkey? I don't know. Mashed potatoes? Just not a fan stuffing, of Stuffing? 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 No, I know. But Think about it. I, I just... It was just something that never appealed to me. And I loved being with my family and I loved our traditions around Christmas because our parents had always welcomed other families, other people, especially for Christmas meals or any holiday. We always had people that were alone that come to come celebrate with us. Christmas Eve was the best. We were in the choir at church and it was we would go to the Christmas Eve service. And then after, most of uh, the families in our neighborhood would come over and we'd have the traditional Scottish shortbread and my grandmother's a recipe of cherry cake, which we never had at any other time of year. They were really special things. And our home was always full of love and festiveness. By the way, Nancy has passed on her shortbread recipe, and it is literally famous where we live. It's pretty good. In fact, people that I work with the week before we get off the break are like, "Um, are you going to bring around your your wife's uh, shortbread cookies? 
Yeah, and they you, are delicious. If like you I, had asked me like 20 years ago, oh, by the way, what do you think? Do you think PJ will be eating these cookies 20 oh, years from now in the south of France? I eat them working? like a dog with a who's left alone with a bag of kibble. Like I will just eat them until I'm about to burst. Yeah, but you eat like and that then all I the shove time, another PJ. one in. Just like one more. I can do one more. But all of that to say that that those were really the traditional parts of, of of my Christmas, and I loved the people that would come by. I loved the family sense of it, but I just didn't like this commercial side and the feeling that you had to be with people when maybe there were other things you wanted to do. What's better than getting a gift? What's better than getting something? Giving and something. wrapping it Giving open. Something. Oh, what's it gonna be? Is it gonna be that thing I PJ want? PJ and I live in very different worlds. The crinkling of the paper. Say. Crinkling of the paper. Oh, Doesn't look. even wrap things. When look, you give it's an to Apple me. Watch. He just kind of puts a piece of tape on How it. How did you know? An Apple Watch. I love it. Are we done? Okay. <laughs> the other thing that was happening for me um, in that Christmas time was that my sister had been married. That was the whole reason I'd called PJ when I was in the south of France to invite him to the wedding, but I never did take him. So she was recently married and about to start a family. And she was just really happy. My brother was in a long-term relationship. He was really happy. My parents at that point had probably been married for 35 years. They were married for about 55 years. Um, I'm the youngest of four, but my oldest brother was already out of the house and, and living away. But I kind of felt all my life that the role, because my parents, gener my parents are a generation older than most of my friends because I'm adopted. And I, my, my father was an amazing man. I loved him so much. And he was, he grew up in that very traditional world where you went to school, you were married, and then you had a job that you worked at the time you could work your way up. And he did extremely well in his life. I never felt that I could follow that path. Even I remember one of my first boyfriends when I was an, a teenager and we were sitting talking and he said to me, oh, he was a couple years older and he said, oh, I can imagine our lives literally with this white picket fence, we get married. He's like, what do you see? And I closed my eyes and I remember I, I just saw darkness when I closed my eyes. I had I didn't have that feeling and I thought, am I going to die young? <laughs> what is that? But it just, I never wanted that particular path. I didn't want to have kids right. I, I didn't really want to have kids, but I didn't want to have kids right away. I always, like PJ, I sort of took different types of jobs that weren't main mainstream, is that what you say? Mainstream. Yeah. And I provided for myself the best I could. I was always working, but I wasn't motivated by money. And that sometimes created a little bit of friction. So when I would come back and I would be in my family home, especially at a holiday, I felt, and maybe this is just my own insecurities, but I always felt that I didn't fit in, not because my family didn't love me. That was just, that's what's carried me all these years. But just seeing that I was so different and that I didn't want the same things. I wasn't motivated by the same things. Yeah, because even your, and I say this with all love for, for your older brother, your brother was very, had that sort of traditional lifestyle that oh, yeah. your dad very much still like my dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah, very, very brain, much so. Very, very yeah. business oriented. Wonderful, but, it, yeah. you know, and I'd say that. Because he's an awesome guy. He's well, also, great, I mean, look at them. So they smart. got married when they, yeah, were they were 21, 22, yeah. and they've been married for 40 yeah. years, have a fantastic life, yeah. amazing family people. I yeah. mean, that family element is definitely threaded through the security yeah. of my upbringing compared to PA. Your family PJ's. is just amazing. Like, your Thank family you. is just, it's, we're they're just, just solid, wonderful. Solid yeah, they're solid, needs. they're but loving, so your, they're I mean, welcoming. Yeah. yeah. Your family is too. Um, that's a whole other. If <laughs> a little we talk bit more about feral, each, though, than yours. A little different. We had very different upbringing. A little upbringing. bit louder. Yeah. But for me, when I would go home at Christmas, and it was kind of like when I would see PJ randomly, I was always trying to prove to everybody that I was so grown up and that 
these experiences that I was undertaking that, you know, I was living in remote places, I was speaking another language, I thought that they made me more mature, they made me more together, and I was always trying to let that shine through. But every time you walk in the door of your parents' home, I'm sure people can relate to this, you just revert to being a kid. And even my relationship with PJ at the time, we were two and a half years into the relationship, and every time I wanted to prove to him I was different, I just reverted to the person I always was. You really need a lot of time away to to change and not think about the change so much. And that Christmas, all I could think about was I had just told PJ I loved him. And his answer was, like, what did you think of me on stage? <laughs> and I didn't know what to make of that. And then he says, well, hey, let's get together for Boxing Day. But that should have been a clue. If I'm like, hey, let's, you know, a week was, from now, let's spend Boxing Day A week together. from now, let's it was out. four days together. And if I can remind you, it was like only like the last year before that you broke up with me right before Christmas and then invited me to get together at New yeah. Year's. So by you that pattern, you should have realized, hey, <laughs> this is what we do. We break up over the holidays and we get back together. Yeah. When we did get together on Boxing Day, it did not go as I had planned. And I don't know if you remember this. I do not remember it. But um, PJ's going to read from my journal, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. Uh, he did call me on Christmas Day and said, hey, are we still getting together for Boxing Day for dinner? Yeah, that's so, how I speak. Uh, <laughs> We're still getting together. Oh. <laughs> that's my PJ voice. Uh, he did invite me over for dinner. So it didn't go exactly did as Did I planned. make dinner? Ah. No, we went out. And I remember because it's the first time I ever saw you pay with a credit card. Ooh. I mean, you ate most of the dinner, so you should have paid. But <laughs> it was just one of those things where I thought, he's my grown God, he's up. an adult. He's an adult. He has What's a credit happening? card. What did I write, PJ? This, uh, so this would have been December 26, 1992. All right. So Nancy writes, we got together the 26th. I arrived at 7 and he was eating pizza. Now, just go on, in my just own defense, it. as just read on, you know, I am constantly hungry. Can you so, just read on? Just let me, in my defense, oh, I will have... When we go out for dinner to friends here, I, he has to eat a meal before we go out to our friends so that he doesn't overeat because there wouldn't be enough food yes, for everybody. Yes, so that if I go out for dinner, I'm just normal hungry. It's not, like a seal. I not PJ hungry. So I'm eating pizza. Uh, I said that I thought we were going to uh, out to dinner as we have talked about it yesterday. Oh, we were supposed to? Now I'm doing the voice. Anyways, we went out and talked. It takes a while for him to let me in without all the other crap he dishes out. So what did I learn? Well, I'm an important, no, a big part of his life. Yes, that's true. And yes, he would be upset if I never talked to him again. But there's no commitment between us. Uh, he doesn't care what I do as far as coming home. So to me, that's the same as not caring. I realize that I can't keep struggling with this relationship. I know there is no commitment, and that's that. He doesn't listen to me or take anything in. So things didn't go as I hoped, but there's nothing I can do. I can't keep questioning the relationship and things he's said in the past. I was surprised to hear that he would prefer to be living on his own. Was I living with roommates at that point? Um, I can't remember if I meant it that way or that. Oh, that just not like, in a oh, you're never going to get married. Yeah. Uh, living on his own. Yesterday, his sister seemed more enthusiastic to talk to me than him. <laughs> He asked me when I was coming home. Uh, it's like, hello, are you, are you in there, PJ? It sounds terrible to admit that I want to be with some other guy. What? I want to be with some other guy just to forget PJ, but nothing else seems to have worked. That's right. I'm in your head. So I predict by the end of 1993, I'll be engaged. Uh, it's nice to dream. And so that was the end of our conversation. He told me a lot more things in detail, which uh, you'd have to actually read the book because it was a great conversation. And 
But I head back to Quebec in the middle of nowhere in the middle of winter to minus 45 degree weather, my heart broken, and PJ just continues to laugh his way through his career. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and share the link with friends. Do you have a love story with two sides to tell? Reach out to us on social media. This podcast is a spin-off of our manuscript, Nancy and PJ Learn French. See nancyandpj.com for more on that. Thanks to Dustin, Alyssa, and Isaac at Life's Tough Media. In our next episode, back in Quebec, Nancy turns the page, literally, with a second journal and the hope of finding new love in 1993. After all, PJ has made it clear that he wants to be single in Toronto, right? But how long will it be before she picks up the phone and calls him again?